Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Dr. Johnston. Uh, she's a professor at Loyola University, New Orleans, uh, an executive coach and an author of this book, uh, The Seismic Shift in Leadership, How to Strive in a New Era of Connection. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Richard. I'm so happy to be with you. And you're joining us from a very hot uh, New Orleans, right? That's where you are right now. Yes, I'm envious of your England weather. Actually, it's your England nights that I'm envious of, right? Putting on wool sweaters at nights and leaving the windows open. That's heavenly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, yeah, you don't it's difficult as an Englishman to think about our weather as being heavenly, but I, I think I can see your point. Compared to what I'm going through right now, 95 degrees, 100 percent humidity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um Okay, so we could get into what this seismic shift is and uh, your perspective on it. Um, but yeah, it'd be great for our listeners just to give us a little bit of the backstory of uh, you know how you became to be a professor in you know business in management. Absolutely, um, I never thought that I would be here. That's for sure. Um, I wanted to be a management consultant, and I was recruited when I was getting my master's at Auburn University. I was recruited by a wonderful man who is no longer with us, Larry Barker, and he ran a management consulting firm specializing in communication in New Orleans. And so this is really how it all began. I was recruited here, fell in love with the city, fell in love with management consulting. And then they said, you are so young. I think I was 23 at the time, 23, 24. You are so young. You have to get your PhD. And I kind of went kicking and screaming, I'll be honest with you, up the road to LSU and got my PhD, still thinking I would be a management professor. And while I was writing my dissertation, I was teaching at Tulane, a night a course at Tulane, teaching at University of New Orleans, teaching at Loyola. And the dean at Loyola heard about me and said, I want to make you a full-time offer. I, offer. I want you to be in the business school in charge of teaching communication and leadership. And I said, sign me up. So I kind of, this wasn't exactly what part of my main plan, but it certainly worked out well. And then when I got tenure, cause you kind of, you know, pub, you put your head down and publish, publish, publish in academia. And then I lifted my head up and I really wanted to be an executive coach. And so I started doing that. And then all of a sudden I started seeing this seismic shift. Uh, and that's what prompted me to write the book. Right. Right. Yeah. So come on then. What is this? What is this seismic shift? Yeah. So I was from the generation where I was mentored by leaders who were of the command and control um, style, and they were much more authoritarian. Just do what I say, um, not necessarily what I do. They knew the answers to everything. Um, they were true experts who just led with such power and control. And I, that's what I was used to. I admired that. I looked up to that. I thought it was very effective. I was surrounded by that, right? And so my big eureka, why I wrote The Seismic Shift is because when I was executive coaching, a lot of my clients, I could see that they were also using that command and control authoritarian style because that's what their boss used. That's what their mentor used. And all of a sudden, it was no longer effective. So these clients that I was getting hired by these companies, please help. They're creating cultures of fear. Their employees don't want to speak up. Their employees aren't happy. They're killing the morale. And, and the clients that I was coaching, they're like, but 
this is what the person did in this position before me. This is how I was trained. What's happening? So there was this seismic shift. So I wanted to document that. And then it really spoke to me because I realized I had almost failed in that I was command and control in the MBA classroom, thinking that's what I needed to be like in order to be effective. I kind of, I totally suppressed my natural personality. I certainly didn't wear hot pink and I certainly wasn't super enthusiastic in the classroom. I was just trying to be, you know, always in control and power because that's what an MBA professor looked like to me. And I and I was this close from failing. My dean had to bring me in the office and say, whoa, Michelle, I don't know what's going on, but you got to improve your teaching evaluations. You're not connecting with your students. So the seismic shift that, that happened to me, that big eureka of seeing it in, in corporations where I was coaching leaders getting pushed out, realizing that that could have happened to me. That's when I was like, I need to get this message out and help others so that others don't make the same mistakes. Right, right. That's, yeah. And I actually love that, that part of the book where you talk about you, you ditch the pants, so you're going to put, you start wearing heels, right? You're going to, uh, yeah, let this part of you out. Like, so, that was obviously one of the one of the um, the actions that you took, right? Was to change your your dress. But yeah, talk talk to me a little bit more about what are some of the ways in which you changed who you were as you made this shift for yourself. Yeah. So I in a lot of and so and so when I had that eureka and I realized there was a seismic shift and I'm writing the book, I, I had to figure out, okay, well then what what will it take to be successful? And I realized Mm. it was all about connection. And so the reason why my clients weren't connecting with their teams, which is how it showed up in the data, whenever I begin a coaching relationship, I conduct a 360 analysis. And so I interview key stakeholders above, below, across. And so I begin with this rich data book of how others perceive this leader. And so how it showed up in the data was the team didn't trust the leader. They, the, the leader had lost connection with the team. And then I realized that the reason why the leader had lost connection with the team is because the leaders were trying to be somebody they weren't. Mm-hmm. So they weren't connected with themselves. So going back to your question about me, again, this is all kind of happening at the same time, these big eurekas. I realized the reason why I wasn't connecting with my students is because I was showing up trying to be somebody else. I wasn't connected with myself. So what I had to spend a lot of time doing is really getting to know, well, who really am I? And what, how do I want to show up? What are my strengths? You know, what is my innate personality that will work in this situation? And I, I think I was a corporate brat moving around. I, I moved around every two years growing up. And so I was really used to just adapting, adapting, adapting. So it was just, it was so normal for me to get to Loyola as a young professor, look around and just try to adapt to what everybody else was doing rather than really spending time saying, how can I add value? How can I bring my strengths to the workplace in a way that really can contribute? So it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and energy For that first step, which is what I talk about in my book, that first step of true connection is that connection with yourself. How can you be successful in your environment, bringing your strengths to the table? What do you need to do? And so I innately am am a little bit probably too enthusiastic at 8 a.m. in the morning for my students. 
Um, and I'm, I'm very interactive and I want to hear from them and I'm not a lecturer and, and I want it to be an experiential experience, right? Experiential exercises. And so I finally gave myself permission just to go with what I knew innately would be successful to teach communication leadership rather than what I saw my colleagues do who were teaching economics and accounting and finance. You know, I had to give myself permission to, to do what I knew was best for the students right. to connect with the students. Right. Right. And so when you talk about these experiential exercises, what did that look like in the classroom? Like what are the, what are, what are the ways in which you changed it up in, in your Yeah. Teaching? So what I, I had been lecturing on, you know, an example in my strategic communication course, so much of today's communication is about meetings, right? How in the world do you own your calendar and all the meetings that you're in? How do you run effective meetings? How do you facilitate all, and so I would lecture on that, right? Because when I was just trying to adapt and fit in, and then I realized, well, this, they're not learning anything. We're going to throw them in. So now I walk in and I give, I give you a role to play. You know, you're the person who cannot stay off of his phone during a meeting, you know, and I give the other student, you're in charge and you're supposed to figure out ways to increase revenue by 30% with this group of people, you know, and then I give another person a role of um of being totally negative and judgmental and nothing's going to work and that's how they learn they learn by doing right we all know that adults learn by doing and so i finally gave myself permission to walk in the classroom and create almost a laboratory right let's learn by doing and i think it's so much more effective right but so it it was both more effective but also closer to who you are and your style well said. Yes, exactly. And you know what that reminds me of? I just had a great interview with one of the leaders in my book. Um, I just launched my own podcast called The Seismic Shift. And Juan Martin is the global president of Kind Bars, and he's in my book. And so I just interviewed him for my podcast. And, and I asked him, I said, okay, how do you run meetings now in the workplace? How do you connect? Because so many people are still telling, he, he's the global president of Kind, which Mars owns. So he's now in Manhattan. And I said, how do you connect globally on Zoom? And how are you now connecting in person in the office? He said, well, like many employees around the world, our employees are telling us that they still, coming out of the pandemic, they want flexibility. So they want to be at home Mondays and Fridays. We were asking them to come in two to three days a week. So usually Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays. He said, Michelle, we've revamped our entire workspace. I don't even have my own office anymore because what we want is when they come into the office, we want collaboration. We want experiences together. We want to brainstorm together. We don't want you coming into the office and going into and shutting a door and, and sitting behind your computer. You can do that when you're at home. So, so it kind of goes with what we're saying is, is years ago, as educators, we were told to flip the classroom and it went against everything that we had been trained in because we were trained that to get a PhD, you, you are the true expert. You're the knowledge expert on your material. So you walk into the classroom with the old piece of chalk and a chalkboard and you lecture and you impart information. So we were then told flip the classroom, have the students read about it all themselves before class and then in class, make it real, go through case studies, role plays, activities. And so years ago, that's, you know, that's when I made the big shift, right? 
We're seeing that now coming out of the pandemic in the corporate workplace is make the best use of people's time when they're in the office, get them out from their offices and out from their computers and, and together work as a team. That's what we're seeing. We need more togetherness because it's becoming less and less face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And, and what, was, what was like a particular tough moment for you then in making this adjustment and becoming, connecting more closely to who you were and expressing that? Yeah, I had to give up perfection because I was just thinking that if I dressed a certain way and acted a certain way and modeled the faculty members who were getting teacher of the year, you know, if I just did exactly what they did, that's what success looked like. And it just didn't for me. Right. Because I wasn't authentic. And so it was it was scary and really risky to to truly show up and wonder if I would be accepted as me because I didn't really fit into the stereotype. You know, mm. that's what was hard. I looked around and and people didn't. I was very young and female and blonde and you know enthusiastic and really wanted to wear hot pink and I just didn't know if that would be successful. I was worried. It was a big risk. But it wasn't until I gave myself permission and and then I became successful. Right. And did it did did you have any negative reactions to that as you as you changed to become more authentic? Yeah, it was, you know, and we could go in, we don't want to spend too much time probably on it because right about that time I had just had a baby. And so I wanted to also be an authentic mom. I wanted to be able to talk about like, wow, this is amazing. And they didn't want to hear about that. They wanted me to show up as a professor. So that was also hard as I was trying to allow myself to be authentic. And these are all the hats and the roles that I'm playing. But at that time, there were so few women. You know, I'm 53 years old now. I was 28 years old at the time as a brand new MBA professor. This is before I had a child. So, you know, students walked in wanting to have a role model of what it looks like to be a successful female in the workplace. They didn't necessarily want to see their moms. Does that make sense? You know, so when I'm, you know, big and pregnant and wanting to say, wow, (laughs) isn't this something that they weren't really interested. Now it's different now because there's many more females in leadership positions. I think you can be your whole self. But back then you really couldn't. And that's why I just love the name of your podcast. It, right now to be successful as a leader and as an employee, you really have to show up as your full self. And in particular, leaders need in the beginning of one-on-one Zooms to say, hey, how was your beach trip? How are you? How are your kids? I mean, you have to make that intentional connection and see them as humans not just as your employee. And that's the big shift right now. Employees need to show up authentically and then leaders need to see them and appreciate that they're fully human. They're not just the results that they're bringing to the organization. Yeah. And, and I, can, I completely, yeah, I completely uh, get that. And, uh, and I see it as well in the work that I do that there is this expectation to connect better. And for those who aren't able to do it, it's, it's almost becoming part of the performance evaluation now is can you connect to your team? Can you, can you empathize? And that is, is something that's happening. But I'm, I'm also just aware that for, for some people, 
they may be listening to this and just asking the question, well, okay, well, what does that really mean? Like, okay, I've got to be more authentic now and I've got to connect more. Like, what does that look like in terms of taking on new behaviors or, or orienting in a different way? And like, how can that be difficult? And what, what might you offer people going through that transition? Fabulous question. And you're absolutely right. That's why I then when interviewed the 18 leaders from around the world, because that's exactly what I wanted to know. Okay, now we know it's all about connection in order to succeed and to be fulfilled and to be happy. Um, It's all about connection, particularly coming out of the pandemic. What does that look like? What does that not look like? And so I and so this is the information that I got. I'm not asking for anybody to be a therapist. To, to talk about your personal life all the time. No, there are still boundaries and, and work is work. You're there to get work done. All the, the, what the research showed to me is that we just need to, to, because so much is on Zoom now or on Teams, they're virtual, we need to embed time for connection. I'll give you an example. One of the leaders in my book is, is one of my clients. He's the chief financial officer of Auctioner Health System. His name is Pete November. He is just beloved. His, and he invites me to his meetings. And I was just in Rome teaching my students. And it was nine, I think it was 10 o'clock, nine, 10 o'clock on a Friday night. And I, w- I did not want to miss being a part of Pete's once a month team meeting, even while I was in Rome on a Friday night, because they're that amazing. Let me tell you why. Because he spends out of a one hour meeting, he, you know, his people are all chiefs, right? This is a pretty powerful meeting as the chief financial officer, but he spends the first at least 10 minutes going around with some sort of question. They're, they're different all the time. And this particular question was, when was the last time you were really uncomfortable and what did it teach you? And we went around and I was a part of it too. And, and, and it was so powerful what people shared personally about being uncomfortable, but how they grew from that. And then they were able to dive in and talk about how in the world are we going to make more money? The numbers aren't looking good, right? How can we be more innovative? Because what you did by just starting with that exercise is you created trust. You created this, this cohesion, this kind of psychological safety. You, you created this so that the team then can, can come together. That's what I'm talking about when it comes to connections, strategies like that. Another strategy, which really surprised me that I ended up having to write an entire chapter on, which I wasn't, I, I just didn't see it coming. I interviewed the CEO of that particular healthcare system, Auctioner. His name is Warner Thomas, and he's in the book. And I said, tell me, what does it mean? What, how in the world can somebody truly be connected with his or her organization? He said, they must own their calendars. I said, how is that connection? He said, owning your calendar is the way you connect with your key stakeholders in the company that allow you to be successful at all. If you don't have a good operating rhythm, which is what they call it, some people call communication rhythm, a meeting cadence, that's what he's referring to. He said, if, if you don't have a good, a good cadence, a good um, monthly rhythm of who you meet with, is it one-on-one? Is it a team? Is it a big group setting? You know, are you spending a day just rounding and walking around and making sure you know, you know, pulse check with your people? He's like, you will lose connection with your, the entire organization if you just sit in your office all day. 
So it's up to you to own your calendar. And, and that was a big eureka for me. Right. Right. And one of the things I loved about his story in the book was uh, starting every meeting with a patient story. Yeah. As yeah. a way and to so have people gives, connect yes. with yeah, right. yes, exactly. the people are serving. I love how I love how you read the book and you remember the stories, Richard. I'm so impressed with you. Um, yes. And that's, you know, he as as a CEO of a very almost 40,000 people now, he gives big leadership events, big speeches. And that is exactly how he begins his speeches with a patient story. Let's let's remind ourselves why we're here. Let me give you some patient stories and then we'll go into the data. And then he'll talk about himself and he'll be transparent and he'll share what a difficult time it was when his daughter went to college. And is anybody feeling those things? And and are you feeling disconnected coming out of the pandemic? You know, I mean, you have to be and that's what I mean about authentic. You just have to recognize that you're a full human. And, and people can identify with you more. There's another leader, Kenneth Polite, who's just amazing. And he's now the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice in charge of the criminal division in Washington, D.C. under President Biden. And I just interviewed him for my podcast. And I said, you now have a thousand people under you. How in the world are you connecting? He said, I started a TV show in my basement when I got COVID. He said, I had to quarantine at that time. He said it was for two weeks. I went in my basement and I decided I had to have at least seven minutes with each of these new 1000 employees that I was in charge of. And so I had my my people on my team set up because they're all over the world and to set up little uh, like a television show so that I could interview them in six to seven minutes and then share it with the rest of my team so that we still felt connected with each other. I said, gosh, that's a that's a brilliant idea that I had not thought of at all. Yeah. Yeah. So the storytelling, because people kind of with with, with, with narrative based being right. That's that's what we that's how we make sense of the world is through stories. That's Um, right. And so he would say, tell me your story because he wanted to get to know this person. And so in this TV show format, then you know, once a week, he would release it to his 1000 people and say, meet Richard, you know, from Southeast England, here's his story. And then you feel connected. That's how you, that's right. That's how you build connection is you really ask people, tell me about yourself. Yeah. That's how you build trust. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to what, it, cause you said earlier, this isn't about turning people into, th- in, in, into therapists, which I get. To what extent do you think people do need to do some work on on themselves in order to open themselves in up in that way, right? Because if you ask somebody, they are, you might not like the answer, or the answer might bring you in some way. I think there might be a subconscious resistance to that, and I've certainly had it in my own experience to always being that open in your your requests of others. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a dance. It's a fine line for sure. Again, you still need boundaries. Your job is to show up at work to do something, right, that contributes to the bottom line. What we're talking about is, um, we're ta- I call them, you know, some people call them icebreakers. I just call them connection questions. We're just asking for just, you know, this week, just share a high and a low. So one of my leaders, I, I ask her, we, we talk once a month. I was like, what did you do to connect with your team this month? She goes, Michelle, I figured it out. I said, what do you have? She goes, I call it happy crappy. She okay. goes, we begin, we begin every meeting. I'm like, give me your happy, give me your crappy. 
And, and so that's what I'm saying. It just makes you real as a human that you can actually just say, yeah, I don't have to be perfect. And I don't have to just bring this curated self to work. Like everything's perfect. No, everything's great. We're, we're, we're running smoothly. Whereas if the leader says, tell me, tell me a happy thing this week. And I'll say, um, my daughter's about to go to college. It's so exciting. And then give me a happy. And if that was asked to me, I, was, I would say the same thing. And my daughter's about to go to college and I'm so sad, <laughs> right? Same thing. Right. But, but now all of a sudden, just because my leader asked me a happy crappy for this week and I got to share that, that I'm happy, but I'm really sad that my daughter's going to college. It just makes our connection real. And then we get on to business. The leader then doesn't have to say, Oh, tell me more. That must be really hard. No, it's like, yeah, I hear you. That that must be hard. And then I say, well, tell me about your happy crappy. Then you get it out. And then you're like, OK, what do we need to accomplish? Because now you know that that, that they care about you as a person. Right. 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 So it's, it's enough to feel like you've been seen as a human being, but it's it's not uh, what you're saying is it, it's not the place where we, you know, we help each other like process at a deeper level anything that might be going on for us you just said something that was i was trying to figure it out and you just figured it out so my my definition of meaningful connection is do you feel seen heard valued appreciated mm -hmm. and and you just answered that question you're right by just asking a question happy crappy you're making the person that you work with feel seen heard valued, appreciated. And then you can go on to business because that's what yeah. you're here. You're right. Your, your job is not to be a therapist. It's just to say, Hey, I see you. I hear you. You're human. Yeah. 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 Um, I can't help thinking like, and I totally agree with you. And I think that's where we're at, like right now today in a kind of business context. And that's what's needed, leaders required. Of you. But it does, it does have me curious as to where this might get to over time. Right. <laughs> if we were to look back at like 50 years and see this as the beginning of something, I do, I do wonder if the idea of work to some extent being a place where we all, we do, we do work, but we also heal. And there's a great book by Raj Sasodia called The Healing Organization, which starts to touch into that area. It's just, it's, a, it's almost a side note, but it's just something that, that, that I, I, you know, I that, that's interesting, the healing organization, um, because my research, when I conducted the 18 interviews, this all was before the pandemic is when I uncovered that the key to connection with yourself is authenticity. The key to connection with others, with your team is showing compassion and showing care for them as the whole person. The key for connection at the organizational level is alignment. So I had all of these stories. I had what I thought it took to be a successful, um, to be successful at connection. And, and the manuscript was about to go off. And then it was March, 2020 and the world shut down. And I called my publisher. I said, I am so sorry. I cannot publish a book on connection when nobody on the planet is connected. Now mm. we're all disconnected. I said, I can't publish this book. They said, okay, how much time do you need? And I ended up taking the entire pandemic and I went back and interviewed half of the leaders to say, how in the world are you connecting when we're so disconnected?
So my point in bringing that up is that then I found out how to connect during a crisis, right? And, and lots of really great advice that helped with the pandemic coming out of the pandemic. But but this this seismic shift was here, but even before the pandemic. And then the pandemic just brought it out. We don't have the resilience for abusive, toxic cultures anymore. We don't have the resilience for jerk bosses. So we were kind of in this transition before recognizing, you know what, we're moving more to a kinder, more positive place. Ted Lasso is the perfect example. I loved watching Ted Lasso, the show on Netflix during the pandemic. I just watched 60 Minutes on Sunday night and their big interview was on Ted Lasso and how they, through the show, they're trying to move from what they call the old locker room mentality. They call it toxic masculinity and move it towards a kinder, kinder, more positive organization. And I thought to myself, my goodness, we're seeing it now, this seismic shift, we're seeing it in popular culture. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I think we don't. We're definitely seeing the shift. It's just in, in my mind. I sometimes speculate where you know how how far this will go. Right, like you know, definitely now it's about connection and being more human with each other and seeing each other uh, for all that we are. It's it's just interesting. But I mean, if they're saying in the locker rooms for soccer teams that they, one of the scenes they showed, they were like, "Okay, woman up." And they said, you mean man up? And they were like, no, 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 we mean woman up. We we, we want a little bit more kindness here <laughs> in a locker room. I just, you know, it, I think we're really, we're finding that people want more. And and now it's okay to ask for it. Yeah. People yeah. want a kinder organization and it's okay to ask for that. Yeah, I think I think so. And I, I think we, we want healthy expressions of femininity and masculinity. Like, I, I think that the balance we need to seek, right? It's like, we want all of it. We, yeah, uh, that's the way I see it. Tell me about, talking about football, Drew Brees. So he features in the book quite heavily, right? There's the quarterback, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, what you learn, yeah. learn from him about. Oh leadership. my gosh, he was the epitome of servant leadership. So I got to spend time with his backup quarterback and um, what it was like to be led by Drew Brees in the locker room on the in training camp on the practice field and he said it was unbelievable he said that um that the very beginning of each training camp drew took out an old school notebook and for every member of his offense whether he was on the practice squad was going to be traded would only be there for a day drew treated them like they absolutely belonged and they were a significant part of the team. And he would write down and he would say, Richard, what are your personal goals? What are your professional goals for the saints to be on the offense? He'd write it down and he'd go around and then he would say, okay, here are my personal goals. I'm trying to be the best father I can be to my four kids. It's hard right now. And here's what I'm trying to improve, spending more time, maybe reading them a book at night. Here's how I'm going to try to be a better husband to Brittany, my wife. Here's how I'm going to be what I want to do to be a better quarterback for you all. So they all began with goals. And then we need to help each other reach our goals because every organization saying, you know, football organization say their goal is to win the Super Bowl. Right. But but you've got to really drill it down and have very specific goals and then hold each other accountable and get invested in each other. 
but so so he was a real servant leadership servant leader saying i care about you as a person personally and professionally and i'm going to support you and that was one of the that was just beautiful and he was the last person there at night and you know signing autographs and he for sure is going to be a hall of hall of famer he's amazing i was incredibly disappointed when he did um, retire from the Saints for sure. And then we found out that he had been playing all season with broken ribs and, and, you know, th- I mean, just he really injured and he did that for the team. And he and Sean Payton, who also just retired the head coach, they had an incredible relationship. But the big takeaway from, from interviewing how Drew Brees led was that he was a true servant leader and made everybody on his offense feel that they mattered and that he cared about them. Yeah, yeah. And, and you've got to ask a few questions for people to feel like you care about it. You've got to ask them questions like, what are your goals? What's important to you? And then you've got to be prepared to listen to the answers. <laughs> I mean, that seems to be like a, a theme that we're talking about here. You've got to make the inquiry. That is exactly right. You have to show up as somebody who cares. And how does you would ask, you know, what are the behaviors associated with connection? What does it look like? You got to ask the questions and you actually have to listen. Right. And then do something with that with that information. Uh, A funny thing happened at my daughter's graduation. One of my best friend's husbands came up to me. He said, Michelle, this is at the graduation party afterwards. And there's a DJ and music and food. And it was so much fun. And he said, Michelle, I read your book. And I said, oh, that's awesome. He goes, no, it's not. I said, oh, Lord, talk to me. He goes, I realized I was doing everything wrong. I said, no, 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 no. You're, you're too hard on yourself. You're running a very successful company. You're good. He goes, no, what I realized was when my employees would come into the office and I, all I wanted to do was talk work and I would see the expressions on their faces. And I'd be like, oh, gosh, did a did equipment break? Did we lose somebody? And oftentimes now they're showing me their phone going, look, my son took his first steps. And I said, oh, that's so sweet. And he goes, not really, because now I have to remember that his son took his first steps. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, well, that's part of the new challenge. When you talk about Drew Brees in the book, you say he memorized those goals, right? He didn't just ask them. He knew all of them off by heart, right? That was the level of his commitment to being in their world. Correct. You can't just ask the question. You actually have to care and remember, right? That's where that you're right. There's a chapter on listening, you know, the leader as the listener. Before you come in and make any changes as a new leader, you better go on a listening tour. You better get to know each person that you're leading and their values, right? And what matters to them. Yeah, it's, you know, to be a leader right now, it's hard. It takes a lot of um, a lot of emotional intelligence, for sure. And, and a different set of commitments. That's what strikes me. I mean, you talked about the expert as leader. So the commitments in that context are knowing your stuff. Yeah. Knowing the numbers, knowing the domain, you know, getting, you know, getting on top of you know, all the technical aspects of what you're doing. This is about a set of commitments to knowing your people, what makes them tick, what their goals are. It's uh, it's just it's a different set of commitments, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, as we're talking about this out loud, I'm realizing my MBA class that I'm teaching in the fall, I think I need to deconstruct what this looks like. So we're moving more towards connection and relationships as far as what good leadership looks like. And so what does that mean? How do you begin meetings? Right. 
How do you, um, what, what questions should you ask? What does um, active listening look like? And, and you're right. Like we need to, we as an educator in the classroom, I need to do a really good job of deconstructing this so that my students know what steps they need to take because it is different. You can say, oh, being a, a great leader is all about relationships. Well, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, everybody's got to figure it out for themselves because this is back to an individual's way of building relationship is going to be different one by one by one, you know, according to their authentic expression. So that there can never be like an absolute formula, but it, it, it's, still, it's still important to explore the question, you know, how do we do this? That's what it seems to me. Um, I had going back to Pete November, um, one of the one of his one of his leaders would roll her eyes and say, I don't want to begin with a personal question. Can we please get to business? And then after they went around the room, um, Pete learned that a person on his team had that his son had just gone to college and was having a hard time. And Pete's like, my son just went to college and I'm having a hard time. And then the leader on the team who was rolling her eyes and she's like, my daughter just went to college and I'm having a horrible time. And just those little eurekas, right? And Pete said, see, this is why I do that. Because now when I have a one-on-one -on -one with, we'll call him Joe, now when Joe walks in, I can actually meaningfully ask him, how you doing, buddy? Have you seen your kid yet? Has he even called? Or are you just sending checks, right? There's that, there's that, that commonality, that bridge, but it takes effort. And the more that commonality you find with each other, the more trust you have and the more you accomplish together. It mm. all goes back to, I wouldn't be doing any of this. I I'm a business school professor. I believe in, in results, right? Financial performance. And you need all of this soft stuff now, all of these soft skills in order to drive financial performance. The hard soft skills, right? But but, but the rich. But the, the other point that I think you're making there that strikes me, and this came up on another with another guest recently, was the, the the importance of ritual, right? So everybody everybody does it, like everybody, even the even the woman who's rolling her eyes. It's like no, this is this is part of our ritual, and and we're all going to commit to it um, as a way of building connection collectively. And that's something that leaders do have the power to do is to introduce rituals. I love that. Yes. One of my CEOs of a hospital, he um, said, Michelle, I now spend from eight until nine every morning in the cafeteria. He said, I just go and I plop down and that is my way of, of getting to know what's going on. Pulse check. That is now a ritual. They know they can expect me to be there every morning from eight until nine. You're absolutely right. And that kind of goes back to what Warner Thomas was saying, owning your calendar. Even at the last leadership meeting, he did say, he said, I want you all to commit to rounding one hour a day. Get out of your offices and go and just walk around or or have a Zoom office hours. If you're not in, you know, they're in a hospital. If you are at home, have a Zoom office hours and just say, hey, from four to five every day, I'm going to have my Zoom on. Feel free to pop in if you have any questions or you just want to have a cup of tea. I'm here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, this, this, this is brilliant. Um, and I should also say, just at a practical level, reading your book, there was something I mean, somebody I'm interacting with right now, um, and I've, I've been asking them to do things, and it just struck me reading your book. I've not made any attempt to build any kind of connection to this guy. 
And it just, I had that reflection. I'm like, I had just happened to have good connections with everyone else because I've dealt with them in other contexts. But this particular guy, I've got like zero with and I'm firing off emails to him. Can you do this? Can you do that? It's, uh, it's so easy to skip. I think that was the, the reflection on it, right? It's, it's, it's easy to go straight to business, right? And, and skip that, that step. It's easier because it's more just transactional and it's less mm. about vulnerability, right? You don't have to yeah. share anything about yourself. Just get to business. That's how I was for years. Oh my gosh, I was just all business. My colleagues would tease me. They'd hop in my office. I'd lift my eyes up, say hi, and then I'd put my head right back down and get back to work. They're like, okay, I guess I'm not staying, right? So non-verbally, I would communicate like it's I'm up here because I'm here to work. And I missed lots of opportunities for real meaningful connection back then, for sure. Yeah. And um, well, it's the kind of it's almost a cliche now, but it's the go slow to go fast. Right. We, we slow down. We build the connection. We we uh, express something authentically. But then we can go much faster because we've got high levels of trust and we've got I, you rapport. Could, you and, could. Yes, Richard, you could do exactly what I do. I just had that conversation with one of my clients he's, and he was giving me pushback. He's, he's the head of information services for an entire huge company. And he, and he said, wait, 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 you're telling me that I have to spend time connecting with my team on a Zoom? And I said, yeah. And he said, that's going to slow me down too much. And I said, no, because it's only going to speed you up where you need it. Yeah, You're going to get your results if you slow down first. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of counterintuitive, right? It's counterintuitive. And, and I think it, and it especially counts when you get hit with a curveball, right? And, and something, yeah, a shock, right? That's when you need that trust, like in the tank and those relationships there. Um, and, and as we, well, there's an argument as to whether the world's getting more volatile or more complex, but sort of in certainly, you know, whether or not that's happening or not, we exist in a world which is complex and, and full of surprises. Yeah. Good. Um, anything, at, like, anything else you want to share that we've not really talked about so far in relation to the book? No, it's just been super exciting. I mean, it's an Amazon bestseller. I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. I knew I was onto something with connection, but I honestly didn't know that it would go so global. Um, and, and that's pretty telling that we're all craving it, you know, that, that it is a bestseller and that it's gone. This message has gone global. We are craving meaningful connection with others. We want to be seen, valued, appreciated understood, right? And then we can do our jobs, then we can self-actualize, right? All going back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We all want to be the best version of ourselves. And we also want to be happy. And it used to be the philosophy was work is work. You're not supposed to be happy at work. And now we're realizing, no, you can, you know, I want to be a happy, fulfilled person. And if I spend most of my time at work, I want to be that person at work with people I care about. And I think it was Adam Grant who just posted yesterday on LinkedIn. He goes, I'm not really comfortable with calling work your family. He said, how about just it's a community, you know, mm -hmm. and you want to build relationships with people in your community. You want to have shared values, right? You want to have friendships, he said, but it's not it's not family, right? But you're building. You want to be a part of a community that aligns with your value system, who you are. You want to feel like you have purpose and you're making a difference, right? So connection and well-being are completely related and well-being drives your engagement with your employees, which drives 
the results you get in your organization. All of this is tied together, right? Yeah. And, and you can well, even then the well-being, right? So you can't, you can't have a meaningful conversation with somebody about their well-being unless you've got a connection there. You've got a and of course, well-being shifts over the time back to the rituals. Like you've got, you've got to, it's like a, you've got to build it as a cadence into the, your style of leadership to be always tuned in. It's not like a one and done. <sighs> Great. Um, okay. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> this has been thank you fabulous. So fabulous. I love your idea of rituals. I had not heard that term before and you're absolutely right. I'm going to start talking about that more is that as a leader, in order to build meaningful connections with your team, you really need to embed rituals. And what do you want those rituals to look like, to feel like, to sound like, because they're yours to make. Or you can also, as the leader, tell your team, let's create a ritual. And, and, and I'll give you an example. When I was in Rome on, on this team call uh, on a Friday night, and, and they all had their, um, they were all muted. But, but they were hearing from others and they wanted to applause, but they were on mute and, and it didn't make sense. I said, why don't you all come up with some sort of ritual as a way when somebody says something, you're on mute, but you want to show them that you heard them and that you're applauding, applauding them and cheering them on. And I think they came up with this so that it, everybody, you know, if somebody says something and they're, everybody's on mute, they're like this. Some people go like that with the heart. You got to come up with your own rituals to show each other. I'm here and I see you, even though I'm 2000 miles away and I'm muted. <laughs> yeah. It, again, 90%, 92% of communication is nonverbal. You got to show each other. That's why I always advocate, have your camera on. Just show me that you care. Again, it goes back to that. People want to be seen, heard, valued, and appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. This has been delightful. Awesome. Thank you. So we'll put a link to the, the book. We'll put a, a link to the book. Is there anywhere else you'd want to send people who are interested in these themes? Yeah. So michellekjohnston.com, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-K-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N.com. That's my website. Site and it's got my podcast that just launched. It has all the podcasts that I've been on. You can, you know, links to buy the book and about my speaking and coaching. And um, thank you so much. I, I just feel incredibly grateful for this time and this robust discussion. Thank you. Thank you. It's been, it's been fantastic. And what a message. Yeah. Let's all, yeah, let's all focus on connection as leaders. Yeah. Great, great message. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, it's been awesome. Enjoy your you. um, rest of your very hot day. <laughs> you too you too enjoy england thanks so thank much you. for listening everyone take care thank you the being human podcast was brought to you by first human for more on first humans human focused coaching and leadership programs head to firsthuman.com